Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. We're just going to read the climax of the story. And then as we go through the sermon itself, we'll read the text in its entirety. But for the sake of time, we're just going to read the climax. Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray. Father, as always, every Sunday morning we come before you with many distractions, many other concerns and cares vying for our attention. And Father, the most urgent need of the hour is to hear from you is to see your son high and lifted up, to behold your glory, to receive wisdom from you, our heavenly father. So father, we pray that you would give us ears that hear your word, hearts that receive it. Father, that we would rejoice in the fact that we come before you as your children, knowing that you care for us, knowing that you love us. So father, we pray that you would still our hearts, still the heart of this preacher, And Father, may we receive your word together with joy and with gladness. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but uh, we are in full swing of the wedding season. Um, We are currently wrapped up in the the months of the year that are most popular for people to decide to get married. I went to a wedding uh, just last night, as a matter of fact, of two members um, who got married. And one of the many perks of my job as an assistant pastor here at Sovereign Grace is that I get to participate in a lot of the premarital counseling. Could Could I say most? Maybe I couldn't say most, but a lot of it. And it's a, it's a great joy. And if you've done premarital counseling with us, you know that from the very beginning, one of the first things that we tell you is that our goal in premarital counseling isn't to fix all of your problems. Our goal in premarital counseling isn't to, to smooth out all of the rough places in your marriage before you enter into the covenant of marriage. As a matter of fact, our goal in premarital counseling isn't even to tell you whether or not you're compatible 
to get married? That's a question that we often get. See, in all of our premarital counseling that we do here at the church, our goal is very unique. It's a goal that I don't know how many other churches share, but our goal is to give you as realistic a picture of what marriage is going to be like together for you, what it will actually look like. And the reason we do that is because we want all of our engaged couples to enter into the covenant of marriage with as much as we can possibly help them with their eyes wide open. Because if there's one thing that we've learned over the years of doing premarital counseling, if there's one thing we've learned from our own marriages with our wives, it's that expectations are everything. And the sad reality is that most of the couples that we meet with don't have very realistic expectations about what marriage is going to look like. They fall somewhere on the spectrum between thinking it will be a fairy tale on the one hand and absolute misery on the other, right? The old ball and chain. Say goodbye to your freedom. It's going to be terrible. And so we do our best to help them rethink their expectations so that they're more in line with reality. And why do we take the time to do that? Because we love these couples. We love them. We want to see their marriages flourish and grow. And nothing makes marriage more difficult than having unrealistic expectations about what it will look like. Because when reality doesn't match up with your expectations, what are you tempted to do? To just bail on the whole thing. So you see, expectations are important. And they're important not just in marriage, but in all of life. Which is why God, in his word, wisely tells us as his children what we can expect life to look like as we live as his children, as Christians, in this broken and fallen world. Because God doesn't want us to go out into the world with an unrealistic set of expectations only to be disappointed. He wants us to go out into the world knowing full well what it will be like. And here's the problem brothers and sisters, much like the young couples that we face um, in premarital counseling, we have very unrealistic expectations about what life in the world is going to look like for us. You see, we're all delusional. And in our delusions, we usually fall into one of two groups or categories. On the one hand, we have the folks whose lives have been so easy that it's allowed them to continue in their delusion. So up to this point in their lives, they've never questioned the delusion because their expectations have been met. Now the scary thing for these folks is that one day something's going to happen that will cause them to question their expectations about Christianity and they'll be tempted to bail on the whole thing. On the other hand, we have the folks whose lives have been so painful and so filled with suffering that they can't seem to do anything but question the delusion. They feel like they signed up for one thing, expecting one thing when they signed up for Christianity, and instead what they got was something completely different. And so they think Christianity is just a joke, a fantasy, a pipe dream, because the reality of their lives hasn't lined up with their expectations. And as a result, they're jaded and exhausted, and some of them are ready to give up. That's who, some of the people here this morning. And you see, what this shows us as Christians is that you and I have a very faulty set of expectations about what our lives will look like as we live in this world. But you see, that's why God, in his grace, has given us 
the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel comes to us like a bottle of smelling salts to wake us up from our delusion and to open our eyes to reality. And so as we look at our text this morning, I want us to see four things that we can expect as we live as Christians in this world. Four things. We can expect motivation for obeying God, persecution for obeying God, adoration for obeying God, and deliverance for obeying God. So first, let's look at motivation for obeying God. Look at verses 1 through 10 with me of chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Well, I have to be honest with you, as we crack our Bibles open to Daniel chapter 6, it's a bit of a bittersweet moment for me. Because chapter 6 is, is the last narrative chapter in the book of Daniel. Next week, we'll be jumping into Daniel chapter 7, and that begins the apocalyptic portion of the book of Daniel, which will carry us all the way to the end. And don't get me wrong, I'm excited about that, but I'm also a little sad because it kind of feels like we're saying goodbye to Daniel. Not the book, but the character. And the reason that is is because in the rest of the book, Daniel sort of takes a, a back seat. He's the prophet of God, but mainly we're given this, this, these visions of, of, what, of how God is working out his sovereignty throughout history. And the reason that saddens me that Daniel's taking a bit of a back seat is because he's become a bit of a friend and a mentor, a guide, if you will, of how to live faithfully unto God in a crooked and perverse generation. And I don't know about you, but I need mentors and uh, role models like that in my life. So it's a bit of a, a bittersweet um, time to, to preach this and, and close Daniel chapter 6. But here we have Daniel, who's most likely in his 70s, early 70s, or, or I'm sorry, late 70s or early 80s. He's an elderly gentleman with most of his life behind him. And the picture that chapter six gives us, just like the rest of Daniel, is one of a man who is faithful down to his very core. Faithful first and foremost to his God and also faithful <clears throat> to the city of Babylon. 
And Daniel's faithfulness, <clears throat> excuse me, hasn't gone unnoticed by the new king Darius. Darius really likes Daniel. But even more importantly, the king trusts Daniel. And our text gives us three reasons why King Darius trusts Daniel. First of all, he trusts Daniel because Daniel wasn't corrupt. He wasn't corrupt at all. Verse 4 tells us that there was no error found in Daniel. And really, we could easily translate that no corruption was found in Daniel. And that's really an amazing statement to make about Daniel because Daniel was in politics. So he was constantly, continually surrounded by corruption. But he never gave in to that corruption. He never played the little games that everyone says you have to play in order to advance in the political realm. Daniel was a man of integrity. So the king trusted him. Second of all, the king trusted Daniel because Daniel wasn't negligent. Again, verse 4 tells us that no fault was found in Daniel. And a more accurate translation there would be not negligent. You see, Daniel worked hard. He was fastidious in his work habits. He didn't waste time. Others could count on him when he gave them his word. In short, Daniel was a very, very, very hard worker. So the king trusted him. And lastly, the king trusted Daniel because Daniel had, as verse 3 says, an excellent spirit. In other words, excellence just exuded from Daniel and from everything that he did. Whatever he did, he did it with the utmost excellence. You see, Daniel wasn't just incorruptible and not negligent but diligent. He was also effective at whatever he put his hand to do. He got things done that needed to be done. And so for these reasons... When it comes time for the king to restructure the rule of his entire empire, he decides to put Daniel at the very top. That's what we see in verses 1 through 3. Darius is decentralizing his rule by assigning 120 satraps to oversee the kingdom. And then over those 120 satraps, he assigns three officials, three high officials. And Daniel is one of those three high officials. And while he's in that position, Daniel does such a good job such a good job that Darius decides that he's going to set Daniel over the entire kingdom. Now, as you can imagine, the other two high officials that Daniel worked with, who he was ruling with, were extremely jealous because by Daniel being promoted over them, they were necessarily demoted. They went from being side by side to now Daniel being over them. You ever experienced that at work? Someone gets promoted and you feel like you got demoted and so you kind of struggle with jealousy towards them? Well, these high officials didn't just struggle with jealousy. They gave themselves completely over to jealousy. As a matter of fact, their actions show that they weren't just jealous of Daniel, they hated Daniel. And so what they do is they get together and say to one another, listen, Daniel's got to be corrupt, just like we're corrupt. Because no one can advance this high in the kingdom without giving way to corruption. So we'll seek out his corruption, we'll bring it to light, and we'll bring him down. So they searched, and they searched, and they searched, and they found a big fat nothing. Because Daniel's faithful. He's not corrupt like his fellow officials. They thought he was, but he's not. And so as they look at Daniel's life, they come to the realization that the only way that they're going to be able to trap him is if the laws of the land somehow contradict the laws of his God. 
Now, isn't that amazing? What a testament. May that be said of each one of us that we're so faithful that the only way we can be trapped is if someone uses our faithfulness against us like they did to Daniel. And so they put their heads together and they come up with a way to make that happen, to create a situation in which Daniel will have to disobey the king in order to obey his God. And we see how they do that in verses six through nine. They come to the king and lie to him by saying, oh, king, We all agree, all of us, every single one of us, that you should enact a law that says no one can pray to anyone but to you for 30 days. And if they do pray to another, we think they should be cast into the lion's den. We all think it's a good idea, King, all of us, every single one of us. So please, sign it, enact it, put it into into force. Of course, Darius loves the idea Being treated like a God appeals to his vanity just like it would to any one of us. And so he foolishly signs the document, not noticing that someone from his royal cabinet, someone very important from his royal cabinet is missing. Daniel's not there. The officials are lying by saying we all agree because of course Daniel would have never agreed to this. But it's too late now. The document has been signed. The document has been sealed. And seemingly so too has Daniel's fate. But do you notice the stark contrast that the author sets up here between Daniel and his colleagues? Daniel is faithful. Daniel's honest and diligent and incorruptible and trustworthy. But his colleagues are unfaithful. They seek to trap the king with his own command. They're dishonest. They lie to the king knowing full well what they're doing. And his colleagues are slack in their work. They're lazy. They don't seek promotions by diligence in their work. They seek it through craft and guile and dishonesty. See, the contrast between the two couldn't be more stark. But here's the question I want us to get to. What's the difference in motivation between Daniel and his colleagues? What's motivating them to behave so differently from one another? Well, here's where the difference lies. The high officials are motivated by the need to make a name for themselves. That's why they do everything they do. They feel this need to make a name for themselves. But Daniel, on the other hand, is motivated by thankfulness because he's already been given a name. You see, if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, we see that the people gathered together to build a tower, the Tower of Babel, that would reach up into the heavens. And why did they want to do that? Verse 4 of chapter 11 says, so that they could make a name for themselves. You see, every single one of us was created to bear a name. We were created to uniquely reflect the glory and image of God by being in close relationship with him. But ever since the fall happened, every single human being now has two options before them. They can either let God name them or they can seek to name themselves. And scripture is clear that the bent of every human heart is to be a self-namer, is to seek by our own efforts to make a name for ourselves. And so the reason we're so anxious The reason we're so restless, the reason for all of the sin and corruption in the world is because we know it's useless to try and make a name for ourselves. Because no matter how hard we try, we know that the name we make for ourselves pales 
in comparison to the name that God created for us to have. So that's why these high officials are acting the way that they are. And unfortunately, that's it's the same reason why we act the way that we do. Our drive to make a name for ourselves is so great that we're willing to do whatever it takes to get there. That's why we lie at work. We want to make a name for ourselves. That's why we love to gossip about other people. By putting others down, we want to make ourselves look good because we want to make a name for ourselves. That's why we act one way at church and another way at home. We want to make a name for ourselves. But you see, Daniel was different. And the reason Daniel was different is because he knew that he'd already been given a name by God. It was a name that he didn't have to earn. It was a name that he didn't have to fear losing. It was a name that God had graciously given to him. You see, Daniel belonged to God. Not ultimately because Daniel gave himself to God, but because God had graciously chosen Daniel. See, Daniel was holy. He was set apart unto the Lord. That was Daniel's name. That was his identity. And because Daniel had been given that name, the name he could never earn or never lose, he could be faithful. He was willing to lose everything, even his own life, in order to be faithful because he knew he had a name from God. And so he stood before his window as he had always done, and he prayed to God three times. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know, this is so important, you have a name from God as well. In Jesus, you have been freed from the bondage and futility of trying to make a name for yourself because Jesus has earned you a name. Jesus has given you a name. You now belong to God You are God's child. You are holy. But I have to ask you, do you believe that? Do you really, truly, deep down believe that? I think many of us know that intellectually. But when you look at our lives, it's abundantly clear that we're still trying to make a name for ourselves. It's why we're anxious. It's why we're angry. That's why we're controlling and bitter and addicted. We're still trying to make a name for ourselves. And all the while, our Heavenly Father is looking at us with tears in his eyes, asking, is my name not good enough for you? When, when, my child, will you stop believing the lie that my name is not enough for you? Brothers and sisters, we have been given the greatest gift of all, we've been given a name. So thank God for that name and rest in Jesus in whom we have our name. Because you see, that's our motivation for obeying God. It's because we've freely been given a name. That's why we don't play the games that the world does. Because the world can never take away or give us anything worth more than the name that God has given us. But you need to be aware That when the world sees you living this way, you can expect persecution for obeying God. Look at verses 11 through 18 with me. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den? 
The king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Well, I know that we have a lot of parents out there and a lot of grandparents, so I don't know if you guys have ever read this story in a children's um, storybook Bible, but inevitably, every time you turn to the story of Daniel in the lion's den, they have this picture of Daniel in front of this window that's wide open, and he's just got his arms out and he's praying so passionately, and everyone down in the city streets can see him. As if Daniel's just trying to put on this ostentatious show of his religious commitment and throwing it in everybody's face. But unfortunately, that's that's not a very accurate picture of what's going on here. According to the archaeology that's been done, windows of the common man's house in Babylon were very small, very narrow, and very high up. The reason they were small and narrow is so that robbers couldn't, robbers, thieves couldn't get in through the windows. A grown man could not climb through these windows. And the reason that they were so high up is because if you put the windows real low to the ground, the heat would come off the ground and go into the building and make the whole house warm. So if you put the windows higher up as the heat rises, it dissipates and gets a little cooler. So the air's a little cooler by the time it gets into the building. Now, the reason I'm telling you all this information is because we have to ask ourselves the question, how did Daniel's colleagues even know that he was praying? I mean, they couldn't have seen him from the streets. The the window was too high and too narrow. So how did they know? Well, it's most likely that they knew the exact time when Daniel would pray. And so they showed up at his front door and burst through and actually caught him in the act. That's some serious commitment on their part. You see how much they despise and hate Daniel and want to bring him down? It's a pretty intense hatred. And as American Christians, that kind of hatred is is foreign to us. We don't have categories for that kind of hatred. Now, the rest of the, the world's Christians do. But here in America, we sort of have this expectation that people are going to respect us and, and try to understand us and respect the, the biblical stances that we take on things. That's the expectation that we have. And so we're shocked when the world doesn't do that. We're shocked when they misunderstand us and persecute us. And so we get together and we complain about it. Oh, can you believe that the world has done this to us and that to us? If we could just go back to the 1950s, turn back the clock, everything would be better. If we could just reanimate Reagan's corpse and put him in office... Then our our morality would be respected and things would be better off. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Scripture tells us again and again and again that we should expect to be both misunderstood and persecuted. 
Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now is that your expectation as you live for Jesus in the world? It should be. Because Jesus promises that we will be misunderstood even as we're trying to love people, even as we're trying to do the right thing, we will be persecuted and we will be reviled. And really, when you think about it, how could it be any other way? I mean, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the gospel message is offensive. At the heart of the gospel message is that humanity is so twisted so sinful, so fallen, so perverted that the only way for God to save us is if he slaughtered his only begotten son on the cross. And you see, the world doesn't want to hear that. That's offensive. Don't call my lifestyle choices sin. Who do you think you are? You don't have the authority to do that. And neither does your non-existent God. You see, the gospel message is offensive. But it's not just offensive It's also only understood by those to whom God grants understanding. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, unbelievers can't even understand the gospel. It's veiled to them because Satan has blinded their eyes. So why do we get upset when we're misunderstood by the world? The world can't understand us. If they can't understand the gospel, how do you expect them to ever understand you? So why get so frustrated and upset and complain about it? We should expect their misunderstanding and hatred of us. Daniel expects it. And so he's not surprised when they come and take him and throw him in the lion's den. But persecution isn't the only thing we can expect. Surprisingly, we should also expect adoration for obeying God. Adoration for obeying God. And we can see this not only in the previous verses, I'm not going to reread them, but we can see this throughout the entire story. You see, it's abundantly clear from our text that Darius loves Daniel. Or to put it in English slang, Darius seems to have a bromance for Daniel. Have have you noticed that? In verse 14, let me just take you through this. In verse 14, Darius is distressed when he hears that Daniel is going to be thrown in the lion's den. And so he looks for a possible legal loophole to save Daniel from his fate, but he can't find one. Or in verse 16, right before Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, Darius says that he hopes Daniel's God saves him from the lion's. And later that night in verse 18, the king can't sleep or eat or distract himself from thinking about Daniel. And so the next day in verse 19, he gets up early in the morning to go see if Daniel survived his night with the beasts. And then in verse 20, he's so concerned for Daniel that this king, the most powerful man um, alive at the time, his voice cries out in anguish for a response from his friend Daniel. You see, the king clearly loves Daniel. But we have to ask ourselves, how does this fit with the previous point? How how can we expect persecution from the world and also adoration from the world? Because clearly Darius isn't a believer. 
He's part of the world. So how does this, how does this fit together? How's this going to work? Well, the reason we can expect both is because that's how life was for Jesus. Jesus was misunderstood and persecuted and eventually crucified by those who hated him in the world. But Jesus was also loved and appreciated and respected by some unbelievers in the world as well. For example, do you remember Pontius Pilate? He's been immortalized in the Apostles' Creed under, as one under whom Jesus was crucified. But when we look at Jesus' interactions with Pilate in John 18 and 19, we see that Pilate grows to respect and appreciate Jesus. Not in a saving way, but in a way that sets him to do all that he can to save Jesus. He fails, but he tried. Why? Two reasons. He knew Jesus was innocent, but he also liked Jesus. He liked him. So you see, one of the tests to know whether or not you're truly following Jesus is whether or not you have unbelievers who love you and unbelievers who hate you. Because Jesus had both. Now unfortunately, when you compare our lives to Jesus's or our lives to Daniel's, we don't quite measure up, do we? See, most of us either have one or the other. On the one hand, some of us seek to be so kind and so compassionate that we strive to remove any offense from the gospel. And so all we have in our lives is unbelievers who love us. But I want you to know, I want to warn you a little bit, that's a scary place to be. Because Jesus says in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. In other words, if you don't say anything that upsets people, then you're not truly sharing the message of Jesus. You're not sharing the gospel. Because sharing the gospel will necessarily get you into trouble. It will make people hate you and malign you and persecute you. So if that never happens to you, and I don't say this lightly, it's probably because you're being a coward. You may think that you're being loving, but really you're just smiling and waving at people as they're marching their way to hell. And no true servant of Jesus does that. You see, it's because we love people that we tell them the hard truths of the gospel. Now, on the other hand, some of us are so argumentative, so punchy, so combative, that we're constantly looking for a fight. And these folks love to tell people the hard truths. They love to just blast people out of the water. They love to go around getting everybody wound up and just condemning everyone. You see, they take an improper joy in telling people the hard truths because it makes them feel superior to others. As a matter of fact, for these folks, they oftentimes have a hard time sharing the good news of grace with other people. Instead, they just beat others to death with the law, or they fight about obscure theological doctrines. And by doing so, they add unnecessary offenses to an already offensive gospel. So you see, Christians, we should have unbelievers in our lives who love us and unbelievers in our lives who hate us. Because if we're faithfully living for Jesus, we'll definitely have both, even as he had both. But if we're going to live this way, the way God has called us to, we need to expect one more thing. We need to expect deliverance for obeying God. Look at verses 19 through 28 with me. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? 
Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. This is the part that they always skipped in Sunday school, right? They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Now, I have to be really careful with this last point because I don't want you to misunderstand what the text is saying here. What some people take away from this story is that if you just trust God enough, if you just have enough faith, if you just obey God, then God will keep bad things from happening to you. And you see, that's how a lot of people think about Christianity as well. If you obey God and you're a good person, then God will give you a good life. He'll give you what you want. He'll keep you from suffering. But experience, let alone scripture, will teach you real quick that that's not the case. certainly wasn't the case for Daniel. I mean, obeying God made life more difficult for him, not easier. Even though he was innocent before God and the king, he was still thrown into the lion's den. He still suffered. So Daniel's own life shows us that this isn't the moral of the story. Or better yet, I can point you to someone who is perfectly innocent. He had never sinned against God or anyone else. He perfectly trusted God every moment of his life. And yet he was maliciously accused. And he was mortally wounded. And he was thrown into a tomb that was sealed with a stone. You see, I can point you to the greater Daniel who suffered infinitely more than any other human being who ever walked the face of the earth. And yet this is the person, the only person, who lived the Christian life perfectly. Obviously, I'm talking about Jesus. And you see, Jesus suffered from the very first day of his life until the very last day of his life. He didn't just visit the lion's den. Jesus lived in the lion's den. And on the cross, he faced the ultimate lion's den. You see, in Psalm 22, we're told what the Messiah will say while he's on the cross. He'll say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Roaring lions open their mouths wide against me. You lay me in the dust of death. And what Jesus is saying here is he faced the justice of God so that you and I would be spared. And the reason we know that is because in the opening chapter of the book of Amos, roaring lions symbolize the justice of God. So you see, Jesus was ripped to shreds by the justice of God in the ultimate lion's den so that you and I 
could go free. We deserve to be torn apart for our sins, but instead Jesus was in our place. But then just like Daniel, when the stone was rolled away, Jesus came forth and was vindicated. Death doesn't have the ultimate victory. Jesus does because he's conquered sin and death. But it gets even better than that because Jesus, when he comes again for the second time, says that he will make all things new. And on that great day, Isaiah 11 verses 6 through 7 will be realized. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. You see, the miracle of Daniel walking around with the lions, petting the lions, unscathed, is meant to point us to how Jesus will make all things new when he comes again. Jesus will reverse the curse when he comes back. And in the meantime, as we wait for that day, we have the promise that Jesus will be with us in all of the smaller lion's dens that we have to face. That's what the presence of the angel points us to in verse 22, that Jesus will walk with us through all of our sufferings. See, brothers and sisters, God has graciously, lovingly, in a fatherly manner, told us what we can expect life to be like in this world. And it's my prayer that since we are now armed with this knowledge, that we can sing together, this is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful that this is your, wor- your world. We thank you that in your word, you point us to the reality of the fact that you are sovereign and in control of all things. Your dominion is from generation to generation and your kingdom knows no end. And Father, we're thankful that you have saved us from out of the world. We thank you that you have given us a name so that we no longer have to search tirelessly, endlessly to make a name for ourselves. Father, we repent before you for how we sinfully still turn back to the old idols, believing the lie that your name is not enough for us. May we rejoice in the name that Jesus has given us through our union with him and rest in that securely. And as a result, Father, may we be able to endure the persecution and the adoration that we will receive from the world as we live before them obediently unto you and you alone. Father, may we expect to be misunderstood. May we expect to be persecuted. But may we also expect that you are going to draw many to yourself through our witness and through our sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ as we exalt him in our lives and with our words. And Father, we're thankful that no matter what sufferings we have to face, whether they be from persecution from the world or just sufferings and trials in regards to living in this fallen world, that Jesus is with us, suffering with us, even as the angel was with Daniel in the lion's den, and that you will walk through those with us, and that we can do that knowing that one day Jesus will come again and he will make all things new. He will reverse the curse 
He will reverse the effects of the fall and the lion will lay down with the lamb. Father, may we live confidently knowing that we live in a fallen world but knowing that this is still our Father's world. May we rejoice in that together and may we be changed as a result and may the world be changed as a result of the lives that we lead in obedience to you. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.